Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, where it's lovely, although not really quite a May day yet. It's a little bit cool. Coming to us from Washington, D.C., we have, of course, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. How are you doing today, Rosa? Great, David. It's a great day. It's not a great day, Rosa. But today we're going to talk about Ukraine, also joining us from Washington, D.C., We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? Blessed be the fruit. The the former president. The former president had a problem with fruit, apparently. He was afraid of fruit being thrown at him. One of the people who might have thrown that fruit, of course, is our friend also joining us, Tom Nichols, who is a contributing writer for The Atlantic and is the proprietor of the Atlantic's Peace Fields newsletter. How are you doing today, Tom? About as well as everybody else, but I'm less worried about the Supreme Court because by the time that comes around, we'll have already had a nuclear war. So That's a good point, Tom. And I appreciate your reminding us that there's there's a silver lining to everything, really. Right. It's not to worry. It'll never get that far. We'll, it'll all be gone by then. Wow. Well then, folks, thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> Um, um, you should come on this show more often because yeah. a man after Why? Because it's, it's not dark enough most of the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, look, you know, Tom, you just you wrote a piece, not about the nuclear war a few weeks in our future, but on another big day, a red letter day, so to speak, in Russia, Victory Day, which is May 9th. It's next week. And you in this excellent piece sort of describe why we ought to care about it. Maybe you could summarize that for our audience, who I know will also go and read it at the Atlantic. So don't worry about that. Well, you know, none of us can predict what Putin's going to do, but prediction is always the plank 
some of us walk out on anyway. And there's been some concern. The, the British defense minister has said it out loud. There's been some concern among the Americans and Russia watchers that what Putin's really going to do, instead of trying to wrap up the war on May 9th and declare victory, is that he's going to declare war, formally declare war, and mobilize Russia for a long, no kidding, World War II level attack on Ukraine, even beyond what he's doing now, which would be stupid and dangerous, but so was invading Ukraine. And if he did that, there's no reason to think he won't do this. So I talked a bit about what to look for in this Victory Day speech. This is this feels like being an old time Sovietologist again. You know, we're going to watch this speech and try and match it to things that are going on in Moscow. But if Putin comes out and basically says mass mobilization, we're at war, enhanced conscription and revving up the war machine, I mean, we're really in for a a bad, the Ukrainians are really in for a bad time. But eventually, I think, you know, there's a real danger that spills over into other places, including NATO. And I, I think the Russian military may actually be more hard-assed about this than he is at this point, because they're itching to prove that they're not the bunch of stumble bums that they clearly are. And they're going to keep taking losses and inflicting death and destruction. And that, that goes nowhere good. Now, I could be wrong. That's the problem with predicting. I wrote this because of kind of the chatter that's been going on and the things that Ben Williams said. He could say, I mean, maybe the the muddling through option, which tends to be the way he does things on some of this stuff is say he's going to declare some kind of limited victory, congratulate everybody, and then just go back to murdering Ukrainians every day, which is kind of what happened after 2014. But if he decides to go big, and and make this i mean he's he's painted himself into a corner as it is the only question is did he go get another bucket of paint so he's basically standing on his toes in that corner with no more room left and i i just don't know what he's going to do but i thought i should at least write something as a kind of heads up to say this speech could be very important and very dangerous for the safety of the world Of course, we're all looking for clues as to where this might go. And I thought that the article is everything you write was a useful source of insights into that. Let me get Rosa and then Ed's reactions to what you're suggesting here. And perhaps even they they may have a question for you. Rosa. Yeah, Tom, I, I read your article and all of our listeners should read your piece in The Atlantic as well. And it made me feel somewhat gloomy. I, I, I always feel somewhat gloomy. It made me feel somewhat, even more somewhat gloomy. <laughs> I actually do have a question. I mean, I think you're right. I, and, and I thought it's, you know, a terrible thing to say, but I feel like at this point, the, the best case scenario is that on May 9th, Putin says, oh, good, you know, we won, we denazified Ukraine, hooray, victory for us, and then goes back to sort of the low scale murder and mayhem that he's been engaged in since 2014. That's a pretty depressing best case scenario. And the, the worst case scenario is, is truly horrific. I was curious about your take, Tom, and, and actually all of you, David and, and Ed as well. I don't know if any of you have been following the, this interview with the Pope on Ukraine in which the Pope said, well, you know, the, the cause of this is that sort of, I can't remember the exact language he used, but it was, uh, you know, something to the effect of, of NATO is kind of barking at Putin the whole time. And that's what provoked this which, number one, just struck me as a quite a strange thing for the Pope to say. 
particularly in the context of an interview in which he also condemned uh, the Russian Orthodox leader for playing politics rather than being a priest. But the the other interesting thing he said in that same uh, interview is that apparently, and I'm, I'm pulling it up so I get this right, he said that he had met with Hungarian minister Viktor Orban. He was who told the Pope, according to the Pope, that, quote, the Russians have a plan that everything will end on May 9th. And I thought, oh, I don't like that terminology. Everything will end on May 9th. And I'm curious to know whether the rest of you have any reactions either to the Pope's sudden surprise intervention uh, and analysis of the causes of the conflict or, or to his rather mysterious suggestion that, that uh, Victor Orhunch told him the everything will end. I wish he'd phrase it as something will end on May 9th instead of everything will end. That would have been better. I'm Orthodox, as you guys know, love the Pope, but um, there's a reason we don't have one. <laughs> you know, his feelings on NATO expansion are, I think, wrong. And it's interesting that the Pope says this while understanding that the patriarch has actually been pushing this thing pretty hard. Yeah. I'm sorry, but the patriarch has not been pushing the establishment of some Christian Slavic empire because he's worried about Slovenia joining NATO. That's nonsense. Maybe the, the Holy Father felt the need to both sides this for a minute so that he could say something else. But, you know, Rosa, when you talk about Orban, I thought you were going to talk about the the other thing that dropped or that seemed to drop today. And I can't I don't have it in front of me either that that Hungary actually got a heads up on the invasion from Putin, like the good NATO ally they are, apparently. <laughs> but I don't know what to make of this May 9th thing. I know that back in March. I actually took it out of the piece because I, it was getting long and I didn't want to get sidetracked on some things. But the, um, the Ukrainians, which, you know, again, you always have to take with a grain of salt because they're running a really great information operation. I mean, the Ukrainians have really been impressive about this. But the Ukrainian general staff claimed that the Russian general staff was kind of worried about people raising expectations in the Russian military that this thing gets to May 9th and then everybody kind of gets a gets a break. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how Putin turns to, you know, I mean, with all the problems that are already proliferating, says, hey, you know what's really going to solve this? Increasing the draft and declaring war. I don't know if that's a Russian information operation. I don't know what the British or the American intelligence people are saying. This whole war for, you know, I'm with you, Rosa, this whole war for two months has just creeped me out because it is not explainable by anything other than, let me just be an IR nerd for a minute. This is the defeat of realism. This should be the final defeat of realism as a school of thought that explains anything, because this is about a deluded old man, a corrupt patriarch, a dysfunctional national culture. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here that are not amenable to power politics, which means that a lot of the stuff that we usually counted on with deterrence isn't very helpful to us right now. And so, you know, that's why I've been kind of giving a lot of props to Biden for handling this the way he has. And maybe at some point we can talk about why Adam Kinzinger's AUMF is such a stupid idea, or maybe we can just leave it behind. But anyway, that was an overly long answer, Rosa. Basically, I don't know. Your point is really interesting. And maybe we can discuss later in this podcast what you just said, that this both is a nail in the coffin for realism, not to speak of idealism. So where are we now? How should we think about international relations at this point? But let me shut up and because I want to see what Ed, what you have to say about all of this. 
and whether the world will end on May 9th in particular is, is a subject of interest to us all. I'm very sure that May 8th will come to an end on May 9th. I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I share Tom's sort of radical uncertainty about what else May 9th might be. Radical bring. uncertainty. I, I'm going to steal that. It's an old phrase in markets terminology, but it hasn't really spread beyond markets that much. But it certainly applies to geopolitics and it certainly applies to Putin's palette of options. And I think, you know, if you look at history, you look at the classic battle of the English against the French every 20 years in the medieval period, you know, you will have priests from the same church blessing the English army and priests from the same church blessing the French army times a thousand with every small skirmish. We are long used to churches caring far more about the crown and the flag than about um, any putative church or God. But I'm, I share your shock, both uh, the overt sort of AK-47 blessing nationalism of the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, and also the naivety of Pope Francis. I have to say, you know, quoting Orban is really a, a sort of a, a new one for any pope. And is in marked contrast to his predecessor, Pope John Paul II, and the role he played when the Soviets almost invaded Poland in 1918, deterring that invasion. But my question for you, Tom, is, and we've both written about this, the nuclear threat, the escalatory threat with Putin. You mentioned in your latest piece, Gerasimov, the Russian uh, head of the Russian military, had, had visited Ukraine. But you've also written a lot about Russian military doctrine, incorporating tactical uh, battlefield nuclear weapons. And the fact that, you know, we're now in a sort of mirror image of the 70s and the 80s, whereby it's the Soviets who are conventionally weak, but superior in terms of nuclear, or at least in tactical nuclear, means if you combine that with Putin's extreme lack of realism, clearly appalling intelligence on what reactions might be to steps he's already taken, and therefore by implication to steps he already, he, he already might be planning to take. What odds would you give, would it be one in 10, one in 20, that he could take this nuclear uh, in some form, whether it be you know, a tactical strike on some tank formation or a test over the Arctic or whatever it might be? What odds would you give that this could, this could get that bad? I'm not going to put a number on it because I think President Biden had a great line about this when he was asked how he would respond to chemical use. And he said, it really depends on what that looks like. I don't think you can have a blanket number on some kind of use somewhere. I think it is not zero and higher than it has ever been before. Is it a hundred times more likely? That could still be a hundred times a small probability, but it's still a bigger than zero probability. So I'm, that's all a very nice way of saying. I'm going to weasel out of that answer. But a couple of things about Russian and Soviet military doctrine, because one is the inheritor of the other. On the one hand, they understand, they, the, the high command, the people in the Kremlin, that they would be the first people to fire a nuclear shot in anger since 1945. They will, you know, like Henry Kissinger called it nuclear virginity. Once it's gone, it's gone. And they will be the outlet like that. This is why I hate the guys that talk about limited tit for tat. If they're going to use nuclear weapons, they're going to cross the line and then they've crossed the line and there's no, there's no going back on that. And so they may be prepared to do something even worse than just a demonstration. 
With that said, they also seem to have a really healthy understanding that nuclear weapons, they, they always have for 70 years, had a really healthy understanding that nuclear weapons are different, that they, they do all this play pretend about it's part of our doctrine and we don't fear it the way you do. But what we learned, for example, in the 90s from talking to really hardcore Soviet generals is like, no, no, we were as reluctant to do this as you were. We maybe wouldn't say that out loud, but we were. The problem now is that this isolation around Putin and his inner circle, you could see where in the middle of the night, somebody says, look, we're not really doing nuclear war here. We're not really going to do all that other stuff. We're not going to do the day after. We're just going to explode a very small yield device in the middle of the Black Sea where everybody can see it. As a tribute to the fallen Moskva, we're going to say, this could happen to you. And then NATO will, and everybody will stop and, you know, we'll get out of this thing. I could see that happening. If Putin was stupid enough to invade Ukraine in the first place, he could be stupid enough to do this. Ed, the thing I really wanted to key on is you're absolutely right that this flips the script on the Cold War structure. NATO said, look, if you attack us, we will lose. So therefore, we are reserving the right to use nuclear weapons. In fact, we're going to practically guarantee you that we will go first with nuclear weapons, and it will not be because we want to. You will make it happen by virtue of your own successes on the battlefield. The difference is the Russians have put their own ass in a jam as the aggressors and are now hinting that, well, you know, to get out of this with our pride intact, we may have to explode a nuclear weapon. That's the big difference. What I worry and what I think, you know, again, in the kind of feverish bowels of the Arbot somewhere is that someone says, you know what we do? We draw NATO into this. NATO starts to do terrible things. We then have a rationale for using nuclear weapons. We explode a nuclear weapon somewhere. NATO sues for peace. We call it an honorable draw. And that's better than losing. And that's what I mentioned in the piece that like Russian TV is all over this. Now, Russian TV has lost its mind and is basically preparing people for a nuclear conflict in a way that we've just never seen in either country before. Ed, you may have noticed that they ran a little video the other day on Russian TV of how they would nuke the UK. I don't know how you felt about that. It caused some some eruptions at home because they talked of um, wiping out the British Isles and the British Isles definition included Ireland. Yeah, what did the Irish ever do? And my wife is Irish. And Ireland is not just neutral, but it's also not part of the British Isles in its own <laughs> definition. <laughs> so it's like the Russians made, they crossed a nuclear red line with Ireland uh, on their nomenclature. But I did notice, I did notice, I think it was like tidal waves. It involved some quite elaborate it's all science fiction nonsense. It's like the Russian tabloids have come to life on television. This is all the stuff that was in like these Russian broadsheets back in the 90s about tidal waving NATO countries and all of that stuff. They, they, I mean, this country, I'm really worried that, that not only the Kremlin, but that a good chunk of Russia has just become psychotic about this. And so I, I don't know what the general staff's plans for nuclear weapons are because Normally, they would be the guys whose professionalism on nukes I would trust. But clearly, when you know they're hurting so badly now and they're so humiliated that they may think that this is an option. But I don't think it happens. And to go back to your question, I'm not sure that it happens unless they draw NATO in somehow. 
that then gives them the existential rationale that puts them in where NATO was in like 1968, right? So just to say, well, we're just going to drop a nuke on Ukraine just because I don't think that's very likely. But so, I'm sorry to, 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 to interrupt, but I mean, uh, we don't have a playbook when we look through the various near-nuclear misses and you look at nuclear theory developed in the Cold War and, and since of what role softening up public opinion for possible nuclear war plays in the calculations of those who take the decisions. Because presumably in a system like Russia's, not presumably, we know for a fact, there's no way that all these rabid talk show hosts on the Russian TV news shows are going to be speculating like this about nuclear weapons unless they've got the green light from the Kremlin to do so. We don't know whether this is just as another form of intimidating the West or whether they're actually using it as a tool to sort of explain to the Russian people how existential the Nazi NATO threat is to Russia. But it doesn't feature in the game theory sort of calculations of our conventional nuclear war models to have one public softened up and, and perhaps even asking for it. It's interesting. I'll just put, I'll, and then I'll shut up about this. But at one historical d- data point here, the Soviets, remember, they were always good at accusing others of doing what they were doing, right? When the movie Red Dawn came out, which you know today my students can't believe was actually released as a serious drama rather than as a kind of campy comedy. But when Red Dawn was released in 1984, the Kremlin said, this is part of Reagan's attempt to prepare the American people for nuclear conflict, for an actual World War III conflict with the Soviet Union. And I think that there is still that mentality. And I think you're right, Ed. I think some of it is they're doing it to tamp down internal dissent. They're doing it as messaging to the West because the feedback loop between Tucker Carlson and Russian television is now iron. I mean, it's just, you know, that's practically the hotline now. And they know that a lot of what they say gets gets play and what he says gets play over there. So they're playing an information game. Whether they're tr- genuinely softening up their public to accept the Russian detonation of a nuclear weapon, I don't know, but it's it's the kind of thing they would do. Let's put it that way. Well, you know, I, 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 there are so many ifs and what ifs in, in this conversation that it becomes easy to get to really disturbing outcomes. But let, let me turn to Rosa, who we haven't heard from much, and raise this, this sort of core question here, which is, what benefit would there be for the Russians in doing this? First of all, I'm going to say, and you can't say anything conclusive, but I think the odds of NATO being drawn into this are very low. They have shown a lot of restraint. They don't want to be drawn into it. The only way to do that would actually be to attack a NATO country. But further, in terms of using a nuke or doubling down on Ukraine, Every decision they've made so far for the past two months has been costly to them and has weakened them in one way or another, economically, militarily, diplomatically. Why would a government of at least partially rational people do more of what isn't working, Rosa? 
Well, I think it goes back to Tom's point. You know, the assumption of rationality is is clearly an erroneous one. I, I and I think that the Trump era in this country has also been a reminder of that. That if our predictions are premised on the notion that we have rational actors, at least in the sort of the narrowest sense of the term, it doesn't work, you know, or rather it depends what your framework is, right? If Putin's framework for rational decision-making is, it is imperative that I be seen as strong, no matter what the cost, that is the most important thing. And I would rather die and take everybody else down with me than be perceived as anything other than strong and victorious. Then it's perfectly rational for him to think, you know, après la deluge and so forth. I mean, why not, right? But if, if our assumption is that Putin and others around him are making rational decisions about the best interests of Russia, clearly it doesn't make any sense. But I don't think there's any evidence that they are, that that is what motivates them. And I think that this is a, it is a profound problem, right? That so much about the world order rests on the assumption of kind of minimal rationality, that, that states don't want to cease to exist, that people as individuals don't want to cease to exist, that when push comes to shove, most people, most of the time, will, will choose taking some ego blows over destruction, over ceasing to exist. I think even if that's true of most people most of the time, it's clearly not true of all people all of the time. And we, we occupy a world in which we only recently ceased to have a leader here in the United States who clearly was not a rational actor in any traditional sense of the world for IR theory purposes. And we now have Putin, who equally clearly is probably not a rational actor for IR theory purposes. And that creates a tremendous amount of unpredictability. I mean, even in a real, even in an actual realist world where our assumptions hold true, there's unpredictability because there's people miss, you know, states and people misunderstand each other. People make mistakes. You know, you get into escalatory spirals that nobody wanted to get into, et cetera. So I, I, I do not know what is in Putin's mind. I do not know what is in the minds of those few people he talks to. I don't know what they're saying to him. I actually have a, you know, another question to throw out to the rest of you, though. Tom, you were you mentioned Red Dawn. I I, I find myself share. I, I share your view that that although I think a use of nuclear weapons remains unlikely, I also think it is more likely now than it has been at. I don't know about any previous time. I, you know, I'm not a student of the Cuban Missile Crisis, et cetera, but, but certainly at any time in, in my own lifetime, it is more likely. And yet this has not led, at least at this moment, to any kind of widespread shared public sense of existential threat. I mean, I think that there is, in fact, a increasingly wide sense of existential threat related to climate change in this country. You know, it's not, it's far from universal, but Certainly, when I when I think about the the students I teach, for instance, they they get that they view it as an existential threat. But I don't hear people saying, "Oh my goodness, the world faces an existential threat of nuclear conflict," and that's very different from you know even even my own childhood, right? Where again, it was certainly not universal. There were plenty of people who said, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. Not going to happen. Don't be so silly." You know, movies like Red Dawn and The Day After reflected that fairly widespread cultural angst about living in such a precarious world where there could be a nuclear catastrophe. It was very much part of people's consciousness. And I don't think that's the case now, even despite the last few months. And I wonder, number one, is that just 
should we be worried about that? Should we be worried that other people aren't as worried as they should be? Or does it not really make any difference because it's completely beyond our control anyway, frankly? I mean, you know, we might say, look, the Biden administration is doing about as good a job as anybody could conceivably do. So us spending all of our time panicking and, you know, digging our, you know, digging our bunkers deeper isn't going to change anything anyway. So, you know, let's party. And besides, we can talk about, you know, the Supreme Court anyway. And we've got other stuff we can we can talk about and be mad about. Should it bother us that nobody seems all that bothered? Well, let's yeah. talk about that. But let's talk about it in one moment. This is the time we take a break. And we say to all those who are joining us from the general public, thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion. If you want to hear the rest of the discussion or the rest of you know all of our discussions, become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's like price of a Starbucks cup of coffee every month. And, and you can join us and, and hear all the bonus content. Every single one of our podcasts is about 33% bonus content. So hope that'll motivate you to uh, become a member. We've got some interesting new things for members coming up. For those of you who are members, stand by. We'll be back in a moment. 